Welcome to the King's Anywhere podcast, inspirational teaching, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whenever you're ready. Right, a very, very simple service, uh, sermon, ABC, doesn't get any more simple than that, ABC, so when, when I've got to C, you can start thinking about the, uh, the coffee and cup of tea, okay, ABC, action, Bible, change doesn't get any easier than that. Action, Bible, change. We're going to be looking at the wise and foolish builders. But first of all, I'm going to um, just talk to you about the worst ever stadium disaster that happened uh, in the world. Now, immediately, you may go to a quite modern stadium disaster. I I remember when I was 13, 14, I was um, watching the telly. Uh, a fairly early afternoon, and um, I remember live on TV watching the fire in that stadium, uh, catching hold and ripping around. And I remember stood there in front of the telly, uh, watching these people, these poor people, streaming onto the pitch. Uh, And unfortunately, lots of lives were lost. Um, I live in the city of Liverpool. That city is marked... uh, and people will go to the match and they will wear the number 97 because the stadium disaster that those people went through has kind of left its mark. Now, these were terrible and Heisel and if you can remember uh, any others, but we kind of got away of these stadium disasters. They kind of leave a mark on people, don't they? But I'm going to go back to AD 27 and it wasn't 97 people that died. It was many, many more. Tiberius, who was emperor at the time, didn't like gladiator fighting. So he'd shut down, and he was no longer supporting all the gladiator fights in the centre of Rome. The Colosseum hadn't been built, so that was AD 72. This is AD 27, but the Circus Maximus, if you've ever been to Rome, uh, you'll see the uh, the big, you'll see the footings of it, but you'll see the big... Um, a chariot racing circuit that they had. They also held gladiator fights in there up until the Colosseum was built and also in the Forum. Uh, the Roman citizen loved a good gladiator fight. Now, the difference between gladiators that you watch on TV on a Saturday night and gladiators uh, that, uh, that ancient Rome were enjoying were a little bit different. Okay, so Attilus was a trader and very rich merchant, extremely rich. And he knew that Tiberius should shut the games down. And he thought, you know what, I'm on for a penny here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just go outside the city of Rome where the land's a bit cheaper and I'm going to build myself a stadium and I'm going to hold gladiator fights. So he commissioned a whole group of builders to build cheap, to build quick, and to build fast. But what it had to do, it had to look good. So, cheap, fast, and look good. So, the stadium went up, uh, and it looked grand. It seated 50,000 people. Okay? So, this was big. This was big in the, um, uh, in the time in AD 27. Everyone's dead excited. You've got nearly a million people, so the size of Liverpool, you've got nearly a million people living in Rome in AD 27. 
you, and these people, they are dying for some gladiator combat. So the, the adverts go out, the circus performers go out, the games are about to begin. Rome, the roads are, are, are log jammed on the way to there, and 50,000 people cram into this stadium. The gladiators come out, the horns blow, the musicians strike up a note, people stand and cheer, the gladiator fights are back. Yet an entire stand collapses because he built fast and he built cheap and he didn't put any foundations down. 20,000 people died when one of the stands collapsed. And of the other 30,000 people that survived, many were left with horrendous um, uh, injuries. And you can imagine uh, what kind of injuries those would be. So the largest disaster stadium disaster happened in AD 27. Now Jesus is just coming to the end of his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, and I don't know if the story of that had got round the empire at this time. I suspect it had. This was perhaps a little bit later. This was perhaps three or four years later than that. But Jesus, when he's doing his Sermon on the Mount, finishes with a foundation story. So what the uh, what the inquest found out, Tiberius ordered an inquest, was that they hadn't put the pilings down deep enough and the, the wood had cracked when it had moved and the cracking of the wood then had a cascading effect as the entire thing came down. Uh, nothing's new in politics. What they then ordered was a review of building and there was then a building inspector employed by the uh, Senate that would then go and check your foundations. Always too late, welcome to politics. Um, but Jesus, the last thing he mentions is a story about foundations. So he gives all of this great advice. He gives what the kingdom of heaven is really like, not what people say it is, then gives this story on foundations. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Matthew 7, 24 to 26. Jesus is here, he's underlining his entire Sermon on the Mount with this, don't just know what God says, You've got to make sure that you act upon it. Knowing what he said in the Sermon on the Mount was not going to be enough for any of his listeners. And Jesus knew that. And he gives them this warning. Don't just hear what I'm saying. You've got to, and he says it twice in his story, you've got to put it into practice. Now, when I started teaching, I had a year 10 form, uh, 10K. They were, as I later found out, had a little bit of a reputation in the school. Um, and I was the, the green uh, NQT teacher. And they thought, you know what? No other teacher wants this form. Mr. Horton knows no different because everyone else that saw it coming uh, dodged the bullet. And they gave 10K to me. So I'm sat there, 32 years of age, 
as green as green comes when it comes down to teaching, and my form walks in. Do you know what? My form were really good at. My form were really good at telling me what I wanted to hear. They were really good at that. Do you know what they weren't so good at? Doing anything that they said. Not one thing, not one thing did they listen to me and, and take any notice of me at all. So I was top of the tree for detentions. I was top of the tree for exclusions. I was top of the tree for, for everything. And I was so worn out in the first term of dealing with all this pastoral nonsense that they were all creating for themselves. I'm sure they thought it was very important. Um, I'd put all the name calling and things. I'd, but the stories are coming into my head now. I was taking... I was taking the register in one room and James had been having a go at this girl for, for having uh, uh, red head. Uh, she, uh, she, lovely girl. And, and, and as soon as she walked into my form room, he's like giving it loads. You know, and you can think of lots of things. Like, James, 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 not, not any James in here. James, will you shut up? James, and he just wouldn't shut up. This girl went up to him. She, that was it. This was a straw that broke the camel's back. She slapped him so hard, you could see five finger points on his cheek. Right? Slapped him so hard. And James looked round at me and he goes, Sir, did you see that? And I just, I just looked up and I'd, I'd pretended I'd not seen anything. I'd seen the whole thing. And I went, I didn't see anything, James. Is there anybody else in this room that just saw what happened. And everyone went, no. <laughs> James, sit down and stop making stuff up. I could see from the back of the classroom the five points on his hand. Right? But that, so that would give you kind of an uh, indication of the kind of uh, story of 10K. So I created a, uh, a banner that went for the 10K, and underneath it I put actor non verba which was the Roman legion saying for actions, not words. So I was like trying to get into 10K, into the idea of I'm not interested in what you're saying. I'm far more interested in what you choose to do or not to do. Now, in, uh, we've got different kind of sayings. Uh, put your money where your mouth is. We've all heard that. If you're going to walk the walk, talk the talk. In Derby, we're a little less poetic than that. And we say fur coat, no knickers. Which I'm not sure if that's uh, got here, but that's kind of, yes, right. All talk, all but no substance. A uh, lot of hot air. Right, but Jesus was saying that we need hearing and practice. Genuine belief that springs from a renewed heart will touch a broken world with God-inspired actions, and it will be a tar of agape love. James, the Bible James, and a very good fella, um, uh, wrote this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Now, when uh, they were putting the canon of the Bible together, uh, the book of James fell in and out of favour for the first couple of hundred years because the, uh, the saints were trying to get to grips with what James was saying here. James is not saying that there is two ways to the Father. James is not saying there is a faith route and there is a works route. That is not what James is saying. There is only one way to the Father in heaven, and that's through his Son, Jesus Christ. There is no, nothing else. If you're relying on anything else, well, you're building your house on sand. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to, I, you know, you've, you've come out, I, you know, I'm just going to tell you what Jesus is saying. And you are building your house on sand. If you think that your good works are going to get you into heaven, you have got very, very dodgy foundations. And when the storm comes that will come upon all of us unless Christ returns, those foundations will be found lacking. And your house will fall. For everyone, what James is saying here is, for everyone who's put their trust in Jesus Christ Their feet are on the secure rock of Christ and what he's done alone. If you're there, what will come out of your life are good works because you get to be the hands and feet of Jesus in everywhere and to everyone that you speak to. You get that privilege. So what James is talking about here is if you are on the rock you will do God-centered, loving, good things. Um, relationship with Jesus will save you from the flood. It will. And the bar for salvation is really, really low. Let me tell you what the Bible says in Romans 10. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved you will be saved not I, I, you know think of the thief on the cross he believed in his heart that he was that Jesus was exactly who he said he was he confessed in front of everybody you you are the saviour of this world you know remember me when you come into your kingdom now, what kind of faith was that that this, this person had? But remember the response of Jesus? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Because even right at the end, the thief on the cross had chosen to build his life on the rock. Not himself, not his own good deeds, not anything else, but put his faith in Jesus Christ. And it's really simple, isn't it? If you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world and you do something about that and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is king, you shall be saved. It's my privilege to go around um, the hospital. I've got um, uh, a job in uh, the Warrington uh, Hospital and I go around and I hear lots and lots of different conversations. I had a person this week tell me uh, that we're from Lizards uh, and that there was a genetic experiment about 65 million years ago. And, but this, this was a fellow who said, I don't want any of your God stuff. 
And he go, that's, that's okay, mate. I will talk to you about anything. And he then decided to tell me about this, this great lizard invasion that took place. And, and I thought, mate, you, you've got to have more faith to believe that than, than Jesus loves you. Uh, uh, but, you know, um, uh, but we go, we have a chat and things like that. But I do come, come across some people. It was my privilege uh, to come across somebody like that last Sunday called Anne. Anne's 92. And, and I went, and I was, because she was too ill, uh, so I went to take communion with her. Now, I don't know, after 40 minutes, who was ministering to who. Well, I do know, she was ministering to me. 92, a saint of Jesus Christ, and the love and grace that flowed from every word, uh, I knew that that woman had loved and known Jesus for a very long time. She wouldn't let me leave the ward until I'd prayed for every single person on it. She wouldn't let me leave because she was more concerned with everyone around her than she was herself. I walked out of that encounter a changed person. I walked out of that encounter because I'd spent time with Jesus. Now, it was Anne, but I'd spent time with Jesus. And her worship, her, the way that she saw the world, it was Jesus. She'd built her house on the rock her house was on nothing else but Christ alone. The proof of a Christian-centered foundation is that you will look to do the will of God. That is the proof of a Christian-centered foundation. If you, are, if you are actually building a house on the rock of Jesus Christ, you, will, you, you won't be able to help yourself. You will want to do what God wants you to do. And the actions that come out of your life will be God-inspired actions. And it may be a simple conversation with somebody. It may be a, you're looking a bit low. Let me, let, let's go and have a cup of coffee. Right, I'm not talking like we're all going to set up like missions like Billy Graham and things like that. I'm talking about being the hands and feet of Jesus about where we are. So when I'm in school, I walk past a tree uh, on the way from the car park I've parked my motorbike up and I'm walking and this tree acts as a reminder and that reminder is Jesus, Holy Spirit let me, as I'm walking past this tree let me remember that I'm not here for anything else but what you want me to do right, yes, I've got a job to do I've got all of that but the adventure, the real adventure is God, what do you want me to do today and let me, give me the ears to hear it and give me the courage to be able to do it. And that's what it means to live a life on mission. I'm going to shock a few people. But hopefully not. Religion will not save you from this flood. Religion will not save you from it. I think some of the scariest words that Jesus ever spoke are these words here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Hold on, let's have a think of that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
Luke puts it slightly differently, Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? See, the belief in Jesus has got to come out in action. It's got to. Otherwise, your foundations are still being built on you. And your comfort and your pleasure, they are not being built on the rock of Jesus Christ. There is a uh, film, came from a book, it's called Wonder. I'm not sure if anyone's seen the film or read the book, but it's about a little boy called uh, Augie. He's a fifth grader and he's trying to fit into a new school. There's one problem, Augie has a facial disfigurement. He was uh, born with uh, a chromosome uh, thing and he's, he looks very different. Now, one of the Things, if you know about schools, if you remember from your time there, if you look different at school, you are a mark for bullies. And it was no different in Augie's experience. Augie was an ordinary kid with an extraordinary face. Wonder tells the story of how this 11-year-old deals with bullying and exclusion because he is different to everyone else. Mr. Brown gives a lesson called Your Deeds Are Your Monuments. This quote, which Mr. Brown told the class, was carved on the tomb of an Egyptian pharaoh, describes a timeless truth that actions speak louder than stone. He goes on to say that acts of kindness stand larger than stone monuments for the people we help. This is what Augie wrote in the book. I've not seen the film, but this is what Augie wrote in the book. We shall be remembered for the things we do. The things we do are more important than what we say or what we look like. The things we do are like monuments, like, they're like the pyramids of Egypt, built to honour the pharaohs. Instead of being made by stone, they're made of memories. Your deeds are your monuments. So my challenge for your actions, what monuments are you building in your life? Are your monuments built on the rock? Or are they built on shifting sand that will get swallowed up? See, if you do and say and be what Jesus wants you to be, you will build for yourself monuments that will be remembered for eternity. But the, and I say that not for your pride, because they'll last for eternity because you've done it for Jesus and for his glory alone. Not for our glory. What, I don't understand a church that seeks its own glory. That's not any church of Jesus Christ I recognize. And your monuments will be like the silver and gold that you'll store up for yourselves as treasures of heaven. What monuments are we building with our actions? B, Bible. Why the Bible? Why is the Bible so special? Why is it different? The biggest help that I came to uh, that I was given as I was growing up and reading the Bible was the best description of the Bible and the next explanation of the Bible is the Bible itself. The Bible is the best thing to tell you what it is talking about. And if you come across some things that you don't understand, don't worry about it. Put it in there, ask God, God show me what this is and God will show you and there'll be other bits in your Bible. It, this is not like reading Harry Potter, right? This is, this is the living word of God. God, God is, is like hidden in plain sight what we should be doing. It is, well, hidden is the wrong word. 
It's the best-selling book in the world. It's in virtually every language in the world. People can read it in their heart languages. The Bible is so important that God has made sure that we all have access to it. I've got 40 versions on my phone alone. Um, when I'm uh, uh, going around and uh, helping people, I don't take books and things around with me. I just, I've got my phone. I've got every version that I need. So I'm going to let the Bible tell you what the Bible's good at doing by reading you some Bible. All scripture is God-breathed, pneuma. The Greek word pneuma, pneumatic, powerful, forceful, moving. Like if you have pneumatic brakes, right, they are a thing of power. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God, if you're building your house on the rock, that's what you are. The servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right. Uh, so the first one I'm going to go, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Uh, teaching, literally follow the instructions that it says. Uh, my heart sank a few weeks ago when I realised we was going to Ikea. <laughs> because I don't have a, and we could be going again, uh, we, I don't have a good run with Ikea furniture. I once uh, bought... Bought a piece of IKEA furniture. It says on there, basically, even an idiot can do this in 90 minutes. Eight hours later, <laughs> literally eight hours later, I'd scratched the top of the, uh, the wood surface. I thought, I'm not taking this back. Not for anything. Just put something over it. Uh, like I'd given up the will to live. So we, I know we'd have to go buy some IKEA furniture. Now, the difference, it's Ali's there. She's competent. I'm clearly incompetent. And Ali had got the instructions and followed the instructions. This, this furniture, it was, like, it was like a master craftsman had put it together. It was up and done in 20 minutes. And I'm just like, how is that possible? But Ali had read the instructions. John Mark, first time, learnt at the end of eight hours that perhaps you should read the instructions. But literally, the Bible is that instruction. It helps us put together a life that will stand the test. Rebuking. The Bible tells us off. The Bible tells us that we've got it wrong. The Bible tells us where we're willfully going against his word. But that is not as a condemnation to you. That is only as a reproof or conviction, is what this word originally means. And that is so the relationship between you and God can be fully restored. What condemnation does, it builds walls of shame. You're not good enough. You'll never do this. That's not what Jesus is doing. It says in Hebrews that God disciplines the children that he loves, and he uses the Bible to do that from time to time. Um, uh, remember the prodigal son story? One of my favourite lines of the Bible, whilst he was still a long way off, what? God ran downstairs and locked the door. Because that's what we think sometimes. Whilst we were still a long way off, whoa, God runs quickly, runs downstairs, bolts the doors, piles the furniture up. Right? No. He throws the doors open and he goes running out and throws his arms around him because God is interested in that loving relationship. And that's what the Bible will do. It will, from time to time, 
rebuke you to restore that loving relationship. Correcting literally means to straighten up again. Now, imagine a wall and it's gone cockeyed and it's not straight and everyone knows it's not straight. From time to time in our Christian lives, we can build walls and it's not quite right. We can have a set of beliefs and they're just not quite right. Now, one of them, um, uh, for me, was when someone read something in the Bible and I was, I was in church and the Holy Spirit just used that Bible verse and gave me a 180 change. If I was in Liverpool, I would say, give your head a wobble. But I'd thought for many years that Jesus was my reward. For many years. I, was, I became a Christian when I was very young, as a child, and it was a childish way of thinking. Jesus is not my reward. It's the other way around. I'm his reward. Now, that, that correcting, I had a wobbly wall, and the Holy Spirit went, no, I'm going to use the Bible, and I'm going to show you, John Mark, actually, it's the other way around. It's like the room tilted. I'm not sure if you've ever had experiences like that when you read the Bible. The room just tilted. And I realized that my entire worldview had been completely and utterly changed by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word. And now I know that I'm not the center of the universe. And I'm still shocked thinking about it. Jesus is the center of my universe now. Jesus is the center of my universe. He's not my reward, I'm his. And I look forward to the day when I go and I spend time with him. And because he's my master, he's my savior, he's my friend. Uh, and that's what correcting does. It just strains us out a little bit. All right, we're nearly there. Training. This is the Ispadian in the Greek, but the image of a personal trainer. Now, as you can tell, I'm ready to run a 10K marathon. Uh, no, clearly, I've done like a couch to fridge. Uh, not, not, not couch to 5k um, but imagine that God doesn't leave you alone but he gives you the Holy Spirit and, and that person the Holy Spirit becomes your personal trainer who's getting you fit and getting you ready for the fight that you're in because that's the other thing that we sometimes forget. We're at war. Gentle Jesus, make a mild. Christmas is very nice. We're at war. In, sometimes in different church services, we call it the church militant. We are at war. There is a kingdom of darkness and there is a kingdom of light. We're at war. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible to prepare us for the role that we play in that war. So it's really, really important that we read the Bible and do what it says. Act on it. Don't just, you can have, you can have a doctorate degree in Christian theology. It won't count for anything unless you do what it says. Nothing. Count for nothing. The Bible is not a book of philosophy. Just a book full of nice ideas. This is a book that God intended to use to shape his church and through the Holy Spirit so that all of his saints are thoroughly equipped for every good work. When I 
highlighted there, all, that means everyone. No exclusions, no, no kind of I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. No, all. Jesus Christ has equipped, saved you, the Holy Spirit has equipped you for works of good service. I think one of the fun things about being a newish Christian is finding out that truth that God has called me to do something and investing into a life that says, God, what do you want me to do for you? So if you're, if you're starting out in this, Christian, in this Christian way of living, that is the greatest adventure, one of the greatest adventures that you can do. God, I know that you've saved me for a task. I want to be in it. I want to join the fight for you. Change. 41% of Americans make New Year resolutions. 52% of these Americans feel that they've got it nailed at the start and that they're a guaranteed success. 9% of them actually achieve it. 91% of people that take these New Year resolutions fail. And these are the small stuff. This is, this is like me saying, eat less bread. Right? This is, these are the small periphery changes. And 91% of people fail it. Right, I've got some good news. Jesus doesn't just change the periphery. Jesus changes the heart. And Jesus has a 100% success rate. Not 9%. So, if you let Jesus take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh, make it a heart that says, I'll beat for you, Jesus, there is a 100% pass rate in Jesus. Do you know why it's 100%? Because we're not involved. Because if, if there was even an iota that was required on me, I could tell you what percentage I'd be in, but none of it is reliant on me. It's all to do with Jesus. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36, 26. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, C.S. Lewis tells this story, and I will just use this to, to finish. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you were not too surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in in it himself. We have got to allow the Holy Spirit, we have got to allow and give him the right to say, come in, challenge me, change me. As much as it may hurt me, I submit to you, the master builder, I'm... I've got an idea, but you're the master builder. And even if it hurts me, even if it costs me, even if there's sacrifice involved, I choose to bow the knee to you 
and give you the permission, Holy Spirit, do what you need to do in my life to make me pleasing to you. Uh, D.L. Moody, uh, a very famous evangelist, says, the problem with living sacrifices is that we keep crawling off the altar. Does that ring true? That rang true to me when I read it. The problem with living sacrifices is that it keeps crawling off the altar. We've got to come every day and say, not my will, your will be done. You know, when Jesus said that, he was modelling what we do every day. What we've got to do every day. You know, it shows us something that Jesus was going through at that time. But it's something that all of his saints go through. So, conclusion. A, be a person of action. Know what God requires of your life and do it. B, let the Bible guide your steps in all that you do. Let it be a source of light to your feet so that you're always standing on solid ground. And C, allow the Holy Spirit to change you. Be a living sacrifice to God. This is the worship your Heavenly Father requires. So my challenge to you, as I've finished now, my challenge to you is tomorrow, will you get up and say, change me, God. Search me. You know, if you find anything in me, Lord, give me the courage to change it. Let's work on it together. Lord, let me be about your kingdom. Will you pray that as you're walking into work or whatever situation you are tomorrow? Jesus, wherever I find myself tomorrow, can I be your hands and feet? Okay, bless you. We hope you enjoyed this message. To find out more about King's Church Warrington, visit our website or find us on Facebook and Instagram.